Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. This episode is sponsored in part by Kennedy Pet Food. You know your dog is the best part of your adventure, and a great way to keep him happy and healthy is by feeding him the best pet food. That's why you need to check out Canaday Pet Food. Canaday is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. Check out Canaday.com slash podcast. This reading is from Chapter 8, Laying Demons to Rest, Alice Springs to Perth. After such a tough crossing of Australia, the promise of a rest from riding the bike was very appealing, particularly as the weather was likely to be extremely wet and humid. After making some more inquiries, I decided the islands, such as Java and Bali, were too small for island hopping. It didn't make sense to ship my bike to Bali, only to piddle around the island for a week, before shipping it to Java and doing the same thing again. I'd ship my bike directly to Singapore, which was much cheaper, and arranged to meet Mark in Bali. But a ship didn't leave for three weeks, so I decided to do a tour of Western Australia, south from Perth. At the hostel, I'd met a wholesome, jolly German woman with a beaming smile, called Simone. We shared a room and got on well, so I asked if she would like to join me on my tour south. I spent a couple of days servicing my bike, removing the panniers so Simone could ride pillion, fitting a new tire, changing the oils, repairing the headlight at the welder's shop, and giving it a general service. Then we rode down the coast road from Perth to Albany, along the south coast of the Valley of the Giants, famous for its incredible kari and tingle trees. Celebrated as some of the tallest trees in the world, these towering giants grew to a height of more than 80 meters. Continuing along the southwestern coast of Australia, Simone and I were riding along a deserted highway, having seen no sign of life for more than 100 miles, when a plume of white smoke rose in front of the handlebars. I stopped the bike immediately. What's the matter, said Simone. I pointed at the smoke curling around the petrol tank. That. Simone jumped off the bike. I followed and stood back beside Simone. Should I try to put it out, I said. It's your bike, said Simone. It's your decision. It could blow up. The smoke's coming from under the tank. Crouching down, I couldn't see any flames, but the smoke was getting worse. The clear lens of the headlight was milky white. I can't just stand here, watching my bike burn. I pulled off the jumper I was wearing under my leather jacket. I've got to do something. Now, thick clouds of white smoke were coming from under the seat as well. My bike looked as if it was about to burst into flames. I was going to lose it, and I was just standing watching it. Panic set in, but having never seen a bike fire before, I didn't know what to do, how to douse the fire safely. I grabbed my jumper, jammed it into the space beneath the tank, hoping it would smother the flames. To my surprise, the smoke died down, almost as quickly as it had appeared, then stopped altogether, leaving a nasty stench of burnt plastic and rubber. I crouched down to see if I could work out what had happened under the petrol tank. 
Hoping the flames wouldn't reignite if I pulled out my jumper, I tugged the singed material out of the gap and peered into the space beneath the tank in the seat. No flames, no smoke, just a messy congealed mess of matted plastic. Oh, sh**. Bad? It doesn't look good, I said. I think all the wiring completely burnt out and melted itself into one big lump. But you know what to do, don't you? I can fix just about anything on this bike, but I'm not much good when it comes to electrics. Simone's eyes were big. What are we going to do? We hadn't passed anything for more than a hundred miles. I didn't have a clue. Gazing forlornly down the road, my eyes focused on a small shack about a quarter of a mile away. Behind it was a bungalow. In front of it was a blue sign. I could just about read it. I squinted into the sun. Auto electrician. I don't bloody believe it. I pointed at the sign. Beside me, Simone gazed into the distance, turned towards me, and caught my eye, starting to laugh. No. Yes, I began to laugh too. It seemed ridiculous, farcical even. Of all the places my bike could have had an electrical fire, she had chosen to do it within shouting distance of possibly the only auto electrician for maybe a hundred miles or more. When Simone and I managed to stop laughing, we wheeled my bike up the road to the shack where a short man with cropped hair and overalls was leaning over the uncovered engine of a large estate car. He looked up. Hello. He had a slight Welsh accent. What can I do for you two ladies? When I heard his accent, I almost had a second fit of giggles, but I kept my cool, simply saying, I've got a bit of a problem. What kind of a problem? You any good with bike electrics? Nope. I've had a bit of an electrical fire, I said, but I do have a Haynes manual with a wiring diagram in it. I got out the manual and showed him the diagram, which was covered in my oily fingerprints from previous electrical repairs I'd attempted. I could have a go. He wheeled my bike into his garage and I removed the petrol tank, revealing a solid block of charred plastic and rubber interspersed with a few metal strands. The mechanic, who introduced himself as John, told me he knew how to wire a BMW car. And when I look at your bike, he said, it doesn't appear to be that different. The same parts, but in different places. Tracing the trail of melted gunk, we worked out what had happened. A wire under the petrol tank had been rubbing against the frame, which had probably exposed its insulation. It had shortened out and burnt out most of my wiring harness. The fire must have started under your tank, said John, spread up to your headlight, then down to your alternator, rectifier, and starter motor. Only the wires to the tailgate and rear indicators are still intact. That explains the electrical fault of the nullibor, I said. John raised his eyebrows. It kept shorting. And you did nothing? I thought I'd fixed it, I said, and the electrics are the only part I don't really understand. We stripped down the entire electrical system, removed everything that remained of the wiring, then started to make a new wiring loom from scratch. John had only two colors of wire, brown and black. Armed with my Haynes manual and a reel of each colored wire, John and I threaded our homemade loom onto my BMW. Other than a few relays, the fire hadn't damaged any components, so we only replaced the wires from the middle of the bike to the front, which to this day are simply black and brown making tracing any electrical fault at the front of the bike very difficult. John was really kind, letting us stay with him in his home. He had never seen a BMW bike, let alone worked on one. We worked from 8 in the morning until 8 at night for two days. John did an amazing job. On the second night, a bunch of John's friends arrived at his house in a pickup truck. 
We shared a few beers, and then Simone and I joined them in the back of their pickup truck, standing behind the cab, our knuckles white around a steadying bar as we hurtled into the night. After bouncing along the dirt road for a few miles, the driver veered off the track into the scrub, flicking on a bank of huge floodlights. Ahead of us, pinpointed in the beams, was a kangaroo, its eyes huge like lumps of coal. Having heard that Aussies like to go roo hunting, I hope no one had a gun. Fortunately, they wanted to do nothing more than have a bit of fun chasing it for a mile or two through the night. On the morning of the third day, we got ready to leave. Having worked with John, I now had an intimate knowledge of my bike's electrics, of which I'd always had a rather vague understanding. Since leaving home, all the problems I'd had with the bike, rusty terminals, loose wires, had been electrical. So it was a relief to have a whole new electrical system that I understood better and was confident would now get me home. Gingerly, I inserted my key into the old girl's ignition and turned it on. Ever the reliable trooper, she started first time. No flames, no smoke, just the quiet purr of her engine. I could have hugged her, and John too, especially when he asked me for a very reasonable $200. Considering he'd made the harness himself... When a new BMW harness cost $150, plus the same amount again for labor, John's fees for installing a homemade harness seemed like a real bargain. After the repairs, we rode to Bunbury, where we spent a night, then to a very small village about 50 miles south of Perth, where we'd arranged to meet some travelers that Simone and I had met at the youth hostel. It was a quiet, beautiful place in a forest, with a river flowing through it, a perfect venue for Christmas Day, which we spent paddling kayaks up the river, eating fruit and drinking champagne. It was lovely. Even in the midsummer heat, the river had run almost dry in places. The day after Boxing Day, I needed to return to Perth to have my vaccinations and pack my bike for shipping. Wanting to stay longer, Simone arranged to get a lift back with some of the other travelers. As I attempted to ride away, I discovered my throttle cable didn't work. One of the teeth on the throttle's cog mechanism had worn out, so I was now stuck in a forest, unable to ride. I couldn't bodge a repair, so I persuaded a guy who was also camping in the woods to give me and my bike a lift to Perth in his pickup truck. With two days remaining before I had to ship my bike to Singapore, I raced around Perth, gathering the parts I needed to repair my worn-out throttle, another $60 unexpected expense. The bike was reaching that age when more and more parts were wearing out, and I was worried that it would grind to a halt somewhere and I'd not be able to get a replacement for a fairly mundane component. At least my throttle had failed in Australia, not somewhere in Southeast Asia, where replacement parts might be impossible to get. As my last days in the relative civilization of a first-world economy were ticking away, I felt a rising panic that they were passing too fast for me to prepare my body, my mind, and my bike for the rigors of the road ahead. I still had a long way to go and reckoned that so far I had done the easy bit. Reinforced with cholera and typhoid boosters, a gamma globulin injection, and various malaria tablets, I wrote to my parents to ask them to send me some clean needles and syringes in case I needed medical attention in India, where I had heard of travelers picking up hepatitis from infected equipment. At the end of the day, I posted my tent home. With cheap hostels ahead of me, I wouldn't be camping again, but I was sorry to see my tent go. 
It had served me well, making it possible for me not only to visit places far from civilization, but also to save money in America and Australia. Somewhat sooner than I felt ready for it, I found myself at the docks in Perth, knocking on the door of the shipping company I'd booked for my BMW's voyage to the tropics of Southeast Asia. Exporting anything from Australia was a ripoff, because the government had a complete monopoly, as I found out when they tried to charge me twice as much as quoted on the grounds that my panniers doubled the size of the shipment. Removing the panniers and the top box from my bike, I squeezed them into the same crate as the bike and proved them wrong. Not that it stopped the authorities from trying to charge me double. I stormed out, and eventually they relented, probably to get rid of me, charging me only an extra 10%. But it was still more than I wanted to spend when I had less than 4000 US dollars left to get me home, most of it stuffed into a money belt holding up my jeans. Dogs make the best partners for outdoor adventures. Good food keeps your dog happy and healthy for those big days. So feed your pets Canaday. Canaday is an independent and family-owned pet food company who uses the same care and the same quality ingredients they want for their own pets when making their pet foods. In keeping with their commitment to pets and their people, Canaday has taken the first steps at Canaday Farms to getting involved in growing the ingredients that they use. Go to Canaday.com podcast to try Canaday for free by requesting a free sample and you'll get other special offers too. That's C-A-N-I-D-A-E dot com slash podcast. Again, that's Canaday.com slash podcast. Check out bikeparts.com for all your cycling gear. They have a wide selection of over 60,000 bike parts and accessories. Need suggestions or have a question about what fits your bike? Their knowledgeable staff will answer any questions and get you rolling as quickly as possible. If you're in the great state of Colorado, stop by their full-service bike shop, Peak Cycles, in downtown Golden. That's bikeparts.com. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. After 51 weeks in Australia, I was relieved to be leaving. Before arriving, I'd assumed it was going to be an easy country in which to work and travel, but it had been really tough. The weather, the floods, the roads, the dust, the mud, the road trains, the flies everywhere, the kangaroos, and the accident had conspired to test me to my limits. It was the harshest, most unforgiving country I'd ever experienced. I loved my time in Sydney, and I had some good times on the road, but I felt it incredibly hard work, both mentally and physically. 
I was apprehensive about what lay ahead in Southeast Asia, but it was exciting. I was looking forward to the change. Although bruised and battered by Australia, stepping onto the plane to Bali, I felt proud of what I'd achieved. Penniless and jobless on arrival, I'd ended my time in Sydney in charge of a project to build 270 houses. I'd prospered and earned enough, I hoped, to finance the rest of my journey, halfway around the globe and back to London. Now, every mile I rode would be a mile closer to home. Australia put my demons to rest. Crossing the continent had been so tough that I'd not thought of Alex for a second. And now I was actually looking forward to seeing Mark's familiar face. Surviving a life-threatening accident taught me to worry less about what lay ahead. I couldn't anticipate the future, which paradoxically made me relax. Instead of obsessing over details, I'd eased into the rhythm of the journey, living in the moment, taking each day as it came. Whatever was going to happen would happen, and I'd be fine. Chapter 11. Welcome to India, Madras to Calcutta. Madras, 25th April, 1984. We arrived in Madras at dawn, our first glimpse of India emerging through the mist, a flotilla of tiny multicolored fishing boats floating out to meet the big liner easing into port. It was exactly how I'd always imagined India would be, crumbling, colorful, chaotic, and charming, enveloped in a mystic haze that was probably more smog than fog. For four days, I had been traveling second class, the lowest class that Westerners were permitted to use, on an ugly, stinking, rust bucket of a liner, overrun with rats and cockroaches, reeking of grease and filth. Everything I touched felt sticky. I had imagined a nice, peaceful boat trip, sitting in a recliner, watching the ocean slip past the deck rails while I waited for the next meal to be served. This vision of civilized gentility, I soon realized, was not to be fulfilled. Advice to travel first class, I'd opted for second, which put me in a filthy cabin that I was expected to share with three Indian men. Cockroaches crawled all over the floor and walls, One toilet, which didn't work and which emitted a stench that pervaded the entire deck, was shared with a neighboring cabin. Risking a glance behind the toilet door, I gagged at the sight of the toilet, full to the brim with human excrement that had spilled onto the floor. And this was before we even set sail. It was impossible to find a clean foothold, let alone breathe in the toilet. There was no way I was sleeping here for five nights. I went to find the person in charge, and in a corridor, I bumped into a young German couple, absolutely livid because they'd thought the voyage would be akin to a romantic cruise. The man was tall, with an angular face and brown hair. This is disgusting, he said. They can't expect us to sleep here. I shook my head. His partner looked close to tears and said, We had the choice to fly for the same price, but chose to go by ship because we thought it would be nice, more fun. The Germans upgraded to first class, which was beyond my budget, so I persuaded the Indian steward to give me a second-class cabin to myself. While moving my bags, I passed an Australian girl with frizzy hair and a humorless expression on her face. "'You aren't staying here?' she said. I explained I was remaining in second class, but in a cabin on my own. "'If you don't travel with the locals, you're not really experiencing the country.' She gave me a withering look. You have to immerse yourself in the culture. You have to really feel the country to understand it. I left her to it and headed off to my own cabin. 
Needless to say, after one night sharing with the natives, the Australian idealist came knocking on my door, <laughs> sheepishly asking if she could share my cabin. I didn't have the heart to turn her down or to tell her that I'd done my fair share of living with the locals, but I really didn't care what she thought. India was going to be difficult enough anyway without making it harder. I spent as much time as possible in first class, trying to persuade the kitchen staff to give me some decent food whenever the friendly German couple I'd met managed to sneak me into their dining room. With white tablecloths, china plates, silver cutlery, and three courses served for every meal, it was a world apart from a second-class dining, where the dining room had rows of formica tables with bench seats and the food's only virtue was its consistency, rice and dal for three meals a day served with all the grace of a prison kitchen. When I couldn't slip into first class, I spent most of my time asleep, avoiding the Australian girl or on the deck, where I'd spent a few hours each day trying to read while the diesel engine thrummed deep beneath decks and the stench of the toilets wafted onto the breeze. Surrounded by dirt and rust, I picked my way through a stack of letters I'd collected in Penang. My father's letter was typically obsessive, a minute-by-minute itinerary of his and my mother's visit to India before our rendezvous in Nepal, and intricate details of how much he'd saved by bulk buying nearly a thousand blank videotapes. Mark wrote an uncharacteristically light-hearted letter, full of breezy news and amusing anecdotes from his travels. John Todd offered commiserations for the theft of my belongings in Singapore and how I was intending to pass through the tricky spots of war-torn Afghanistan and Iran. Reading John's letter, I realized I didn't have a plan, not because I'd been remiss, but because the journey had taught me that making plans was pointless. The only way to survive was to take one mile at a time. On the last day of the voyage, I got talking to an Indian man in his 60s. You are traveling on your own? He pointed out my bike keys hanging from my belt hook on my shorts. In a car? I'm on a bike, I said. A BMW. A BMW? Do they make bikes? I showed him my bike, tied up on deck. When he'd recovered from the shock that I owned a motorcycle larger than any he'd ever encountered, my new Indian friend invited me to stay with him and his family in Madras. Knowing that accommodation in Madras would be expensive and difficult to find immediately after the ship's arrival, I accepted his kind offer. When the ship docked the next day, I tagged along with first class, entering the customs hall ahead of most of the other passengers to find a row of smartly dressed customs officials seated behind wooden desks in a massive warehouse, eagerly awaiting our arrival. Presenting myself at one of the desks, I explained I had a motorbike and was told I'd have to wait for the official in charge of the carnets to arrive. Apparently, he was the only one who could stamp it. I settled down for a long wait, watched the other passengers arrive. Within a few minutes, I was open-mouthed. The Chittambaram was full of bootleggers. At that time, India forbade the importation of foreign goods, which of course put them in great demand. I watched as a succession of Indian men and women presented themselves to the customs officials laden down with watches, televisions, and many other consumer goods, including even washing machines. Bought when the Chittambaram docked in Singapore before its arrival in Penang, these goods were imported simply by bribing the customs officials. It was so blatant, I ended up laughing. The passengers all appeared to have a prearranged deal with a particular customs official. 
A staggering amount of money, watches, and calculators passed under the tables as the officials pocketed what must have been the equivalent of several months' salary in a single day. From what I could see, there wasn't an honest official in the hall. I began to fear I would have to bribe someone to get my bike into India. For Indian officials, it was obviously a way of life, but I was determined it wasn't going to be part of mine. Shortly after midday, the Carnet official arrived. Yes? He seemed annoyed at my presence. He had some work to do now. I explained my situation. Get your motorcycle off the ship. He waved dismissively. Wait for me on the quayside. I returned to the ship. On deck, the stevedores were unloading some cargo. I approached a gang of five deckhands. Can you help me with this? I pointed at my bike. We need a net. They nodded, then started to tie a single rope to the frame under the seat. No, stop. That's not going to work. I drew a picture of a net. One of the deckhands indicated with a smile and a nod that he understood. A few minutes later, he returned with a net less than one meter square in size. Absolutely useless. I decided to look for one myself. I found my way down to the cargo hold, rummaged around in some cases, and finally found a net big enough for my bike. Back upstairs, on the top deck, I laid the net out, wheeled my BMW onto it, waved and shouted to the crane driver. I hooked up the four corners and got him to lift the net slowly. The moment the bike lifted off the ship's deck, one of the deckhands appeared at my side. His hands extended. Bakshish! Bakshish! You must be joking. I absolutely refused, trying to explain that I had done all the work. Bakshish! Now they all had their hands out and they were angry, shouting at me. I walked away. All the deckhands followed me. The calls for bakshish escalating in volume and frequency until they realized I was no fool and left me in peace. In the customs hall, the carnet official had disappeared and no one could tell me where to find him. So I went outside, sat by my bike and waited. About an hour later, he ambled back into view. I pointed at my bike and showed him my papers. The official pursed his lips, sighed, okay. I almost couldn't believe it. The paperwork was relatively little. I paid some port duties, which went straight into his pocket. He checked the bike over, wrote some notes in my passport, stamped my carnet. I was free to go. I rode out of the port, feeling very apprehensive, as I often did when first setting off in a new country. That sense of being unsure, feeling my way, discovering how much things would cost, always unnerved me. Riding through the dusty industrial streets of Madras, rickshaws buzzing around me, I was pleasantly surprised by the roads and the traffic. Not quite the completely chaotic mayhem I'd anticipated. The roads were all sealed and in reasonable condition. Before long, I'd found the address given to me by the old man on the ship and was being made very welcome by his son and his family, who owned the house there. Very well off, even by Western standards, they had several color televisions, every conceivable electrical appliance, and a couple of servants, one of whom showed me to my room, then left me to shower. Over a delicious dinner of vegetables, curry, and rice, I got an insight into the family dynamics. Speaking little English, their conversation with me was limited, making me wonder why the old man had invited me at all, but I can tell that the son was very much the master of the house, his wife only speaking when directly addressed. After dinner, they invited me to watch television, a Bollywood film that was not my thing. Making my excuses, I explained I'd had a long day and headed for bed. All right, that'll do it for the readings from Elspeth Beard's book, Lone Rider. 
Be sure to check her out on episode 292 from July 31st. You can also find the links to her book in our show notes. Make sure you tune in on Monday when we talk to Amber Casali about hiking to fire towers. Until then, get out, have a great weekend, and make sure you give us a rating and review in iTunes and visit us on Patreon and become a patron. Thanks, guys.